from your favorite podcatchers on our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 26, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2. OG fans and kaiju lovers, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Scherchel. And I'm Nathan Marchand. And in this episode, we'll be covering Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2 from 1993. It is uh, our latest Heisei movie, and uh, this is uh, a lot of familiar territory. Yeah, except unlike with the last one, we don't get a new monster. No, he's just get normal stuff unless you want to count baby godzilla but he's just minya our related topic for this episode is the relocation of marine corps air station futenma before we get to all that let's do our quick description of the film take it away nate you're listening to kaiju vision radio godzilla is a force of nature he hears Baby Godzilla's cries for help and searches for him on Adonoa Island and Japan, destroying anything in his path. He battles Rodan for possession of the little kaiju and fights Mechagodzilla for interfering with his search. Mechagodzilla is a giant robot created and piloted by the United Nations Countermeasure Center using technology salvaged from Mecha King Ghidorah. Its purpose is to destroy Godzilla. Rodan is a mutated pteranodon competing with Godzilla for Baby Godzilla, who is a gentle newborn Godzillasaurus instinctively calling for help while in human custody. Kazuma Aoki is a quirky, though competent G-Force pilot who wants to prove that the Garuda is as worthwhile a machine as Mechagodzilla. He also seeks to protect both Baby Godzilla and his caretaker, the compassionate biology researcher Azusa Gojo, who the tiny kaiju has imprinted on. Captain Takuya Sasaki is the hard-nosed commander of G-Force determined to whip Mechagodzilla's crew into shape and kill Godzilla. Miki Sagusa is a psychic-slash-telepathic member of G-Force who starts having second thoughts about killing Godzilla when they use baby Godzilla as bait. The human and kaiju plotlines are unified. Aside from one or two scenes, everything the humans do revolves around the kaiju, especially Mechagodzilla and baby Godzilla. The film centers on a pair of mecha constructed to kill Godzilla. Mechagodzilla engages Godzilla near Kyoto, but the robot short-circuits. The JSDF's macers, fighter jets, and tanks are ineffective. Baby Godzilla is used to lure Godzilla. Mechagodzilla and Garuda combine, and with the help of Miki's abilities, destroy Godzilla's secondary brain, paralyzing him. The dying Rodan transfers his life force into Godzilla, reviving him, and the monster destroys his robot double. The problem is solved when Baby Godzilla is given to Godzilla, although it takes some telepathic reassurance from Miki to convince the infant dinosaur to go with his adoptive father. The script by Wataru Mimura is a straightforward action movie with a fair amount of entertaining though simple characters and two parallel plot lines. Budgets continue to decline when this film was given a budget of 1 billion yen, around 9.5 million dollars. Special effects director Koichi Kawakita made a valiant effort, having designed and implemented Mecha in the 1989 movie Gunhead. The new Mecha Godzilla suit was made to be like plate armor. The Garuda miniature looks impressive, if not always believable. Rodan was realized using only puppets and marionettes. The baby Godzilla suit had highly expressive and emotive animatronics in its face. 
a new Godzilla suit with minor tweaks was made. Extensive animated rays complemented practical explosions and Kawakita's trademark glitter effects. This is a light and sometimes humorous film with a fair amount of gravity. Despite sci-fi trappings, there's a lot of fantasy in this movie. This isn't an experimental film since it essentially takes plot elements from several Showa-era Godzilla movies and throws them into a proverbial blender. There are even shades of the 1961 British film Gorgo. The movie reinforces the style of Son of Godzilla by featuring a Godzilla offspring that is adopted by Big G. It also reinforces the style of 1974's Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla with the return of Mechagodzilla, albeit this time it's created by humans instead of aliens. The filmmakers went through several ideas, including a remake of King Kong vs. Godzilla and a story featuring Mechanicong, before deciding to revive Mechagodzilla. This was intended to be the final Heisei film to avoid competing with TriStar's remake and to honor Ashiro Honda's recent passing. The film was touted as composer Akira Fukabe's final performance and aggressively marketed by Toho to attract longtime Godzilla fans. Adding Baby Godzilla was an appeal to the female moviegoers who made the previous film a hit. It succeeded. When released December 11th, 1993, in Japan, it grossed 1.78 trillion yen, or $18 million, and sold 3.8 million tickets, making it the second highest grossing Japanese film of 1994. TriStar Pictures released the dub version in the U.S. on VHS and DVD in 1999. It's generally well-liked by the fanbase. The dub version was mostly untouched by TriStar, who cut the credits in their first release but added them in the 2014 Blu-ray. The dub is notable for referring to Rodin by his Japanese name, Radon. A handful of forces are at play in this film. The Counter-G Bureau is a division of the United Nations bringing together the world's most brilliant minds to combat Godzilla. This includes a psionics center and their military branch, G-Force, which uses futuristic weapons. The technological world, as exemplified by Mechagodzilla, constantly comes into conflict with the natural world, as represented by Godzilla and Rodan. Miki questions if using the innocent and intelligent baby Godzilla as bait for the G-Crusher operation is the right thing to do. Azusa has maternal compassion toward baby Godzilla, whereas G4 sees him as an asset. The themes explored in the movie are fairly traditional. Natural life will always triumph over artificial life. Humans and kaiju will do anything to protect their offspring. Azusa says Godzilla and baby Godzilla will be waiting for a, quote, new age of dinosaurs, end quote, in a few million years, implying that mankind will destroy themselves if they don't change their ways. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part two of the podcast, we give our opinion and we discuss the film in question. So, Nate, what do you think of this one? This one's interesting for me because this was the last of the Heisei films that I was able to see. Mostly because for some odd reason, TriStar released this one last, and it was a year after the other 90s films, which didn't really make any sense to me, especially if I was someone who was watching these the first for the first time and not really knowing anything about this series. Because there's some pretty significant things that happened in this movie that were you would be completely missing if you went from the last movie to the next one, which is Space Godzilla. It'd be a little bit confusing. Plus, when I had read about this movie in uh, the official Godzilla compendium, which was the uh, where I learned about a lot of these films for the first time, 
it was touted in that book as the best of the Heisei series, so I was a little annoyed that I had to wait longer. <laughs> That's the word I keep hearing, is that it's the best of the Heisei series, best of the Heisei series, over and over again. And it's not for me. Actually, for me, it is the most forgettable Godzilla movie I've ever seen. I remember it sort of now, but I saw it twice in preparing for this. But I just didn't... I think it's because all of these other movies were just thrown into a blender and it's all just mix and match. Whatever goes together in the story, then the story becomes really hazy because I'm like, oh yeah, how, I forget what, what movie was that part and what movie was that part. And the plot is so utterly simple that it's forgettable because the, it's essentially Mechagodzilla we're going to create him and then use him to kill Godzilla. And that's it. It's like one sentence. Pretty much. We didn't have to worry about the part one for this one and writing it. It was just not. No, it was actually pretty easy. In fact, I actually, when I was writing this, I had the opposite problem that I normally do with these nineties movies is when I was writing out the stuff for the human characters, it's like, okay, which ones are important? I think I need more. Can I pretend this character is important? (laughs) To me, the characters are extremely forgettable, too. I think that's another problem. The the last one we just did, the the Mothra one, and it had the the family and the divorce and and all that going back and forth. I remember that. As convoluted as the the Ghidorah 91 movie was, I at least remember all of those characters because it was so weird because it's time travel and these guys are time terrorists and they have a robot and all of these things. So yeah, because everything is going on in that movie. Yeah. And there's the, the old, the old businessman who used to be a soldier and there's, like I said, the movie's ridiculous, but you at least remember things about it. And then this one, it's, it's blander. It's, it's really safe. This is a really safe movie. Yeah. Which is why, honestly, I didn't. Th- I hadn't thought about this until I watched the movie for this podcast, and I'm sure I'm going to get a little bit of flack for saying this, but I think this one's kind of overrated. I, I ended up liking Mothra. The more I see the last one, the more I end up seeing that one over and over again, the more I like it. And with this one, I still don't remember it. I, one thing I do remember is the, the heavy accent English that some of the Japanese actors speak. And it reminded me... <laughs> It reminded me of Sukiyaki Western Django from 2007, <laughs> which has Tarantino in it. But it's a Japanese cast and a Japanese director. But th- that movie's awesome. If if nobody's if you haven't seen that, that is incredible. It's a really good movie. I'll add it to my list. But uh, there are a couple points where they are. It's like self-deprecating humor, or like <laughs> where, where they where the accent is just so. Oh, it like gets more exaggerated as the sentence goes on, and it's on purpose. <laughs> but it, it reminded me of that. I saw an anime. Uh, it was called Black Lagoon, not to be confused with Creature from the Black Lagoon. And I, I saw it dubbed. But what was kind of funny in the dub was there was a a villain character, this Chinese woman, and they intentionally dubbed her with a really, really thick accent. But this movie goes really internationalist in that way with with all of this UN stuff and 
Yeah, because they the UN starts an entire branch special, in Tokyo just their, for Godzilla, and they have their own little special emblem. Oh yeah, with the UN <laughs> UN shape around the bottom with the ugh. And, and so they they really go all in on that, and then they have this English speaking actor who we'll go into later, but <laughs> it's it's different in that respect. That's maybe one of the more memorable things about this movie. I'm afraid, but well, there's I will- not much. I will say, since we're talking about that a little bit, I actually like their military division. I think G-Force is a cool sounding name. You got to admit. Well, one thing I was going to mention real quick about G-Force is I actually found out about G-Force first through the, the Trendmasters action figure line. Because they actually, not only did they make figures for the monsters, they also made figures for G-Force. Except the Trendmasters version of G-Force was more like... Power Rangers meets Master Chief because there are these four characters all had different colored armor and they look kind of Power Ranger-esque. There so, were ubiquitous toys with all of these Heisei movies. Just about the for Trendmasters. I think Trendmasters started making their action figures around 93, 94. And then they did a second line that where they had uh, Space Godzilla and Biollante and stuff like that. But uh, they didn't cover all of the Heisei movies. But that's actually where I started learning about this stuff first, was actually from the action figures, which was why when I started watching the Showa-era movies, I was a little confused. But other things that I liked, uh, since we're talking about G-Force, I like the Garuda. I think the Garuda looks pretty cool. Now, does that does it... A lot of times it still just looks like a model, but I think the design is cool. The longer you look at it the worse it gets. Yeah. It's one of those things you want to show it for two seconds. Don't show it for 10 or whatever it was that you know what I'm talking about. It does oh, that yeah. at least once. And it just, uh, <laughs> it just ends up looking like a toy. I don't know why we, I wasn't complaining about this when the, with the show series though. No. Where I was like, oh, it's a toy. <laughs> why? It, maybe it's because the expectations are higher. Possibly. It is 1993 at this point. Yeah. And so when you see the red on, we'll get to later. <laughs> yes. That's two, but oh. <laughs> when we talk about things we don't like, I'm assuming. Yes. <laughs> but the, the look of the movie, it, there are some good things in it. I think the baby Godzilla looks good. I was actually really impressed watching it again this time around. Now... Sometimes the suit, much like with Minya, doesn't always look convincing. It still looks better than Minya overall. But what really impressed me was the face. It's incredible. The animatronics. And all oh my that. gosh, yeah. those animatronics are fantastic. It's incredibly expressive. All the little moving parts to it. Yeah, it's incredibly expressive and emotive. You, you can you connect with this poor thing, I think much better than, than really even with Minya. It's not so much of a weirdness factor. No, there's a, it doesn't look like a human baby anymore. No, which I think is a smart thing, but yeah, I, I actually really liked that. I like the little thing. I also like the Godzilla suit. Yes. I like this one better than the other Heisei ones so far. Oh, really? Actually, Although vampire vampzilla from 84, I, I, that one's a separate category for me, but the, I'm talking about since 89. Uh-huh. The, 
I like the Godzilla look the best out of all of them since Biolante. I think a lot of our listeners would agree with you he on goes, that. He looks more realistic. Mm. And like the the it, he's wider. Mhm. Yeah. You can tell that right when you right when you first see that. But I think it looks much, I think it looks better. Mhm. I like the yellow eyes. Yeah. In this adds uh, an extra layer of animalistic ferocity, I think, to him. One of my favorite aspects of this movie, and I think one of the things that makes the fans really love this one, maybe even a little more than they should, is the music. I was going to mention that too. It's absolutely fantastic. I would probably say this includes some of my favorite pieces by Afukabe. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's great. And this I, was billed as the last movie that Fukabe would have his music in. Yeah. Now, it ended up not being that. Right. But he had one more in him. Yeah, but th- this series has done a lot of that where, it's, nope, this is the last one. <laughs> nope, this one is. Nope. <laughs> but no, but it, and much like with what we've seen in the, the past couple of movies is Fukabe will harken back to a lot of things and bring back certain themes that we're all familiar with because when i was listening this like oh yeah i recognize that tune i recognize that tune i recognize that tune so which which was very nice but much like with the previous movie i felt like it really it really fit in all of this it really fits very well and there's a wide range of it too because you have you have the military marches but then you have the the softer pieces for Baby Godzilla. Right, little tender moments. Right? For the little tender moments. And there's even that that really weird, I guess you could call it remix that Fukabe does when they do that training montage early in the movie. And it's supposed to sound comical. I think the montage was supposed to be comical. It was, but hearing that piece of music recorded in that way seems it was a little, different. It was different. It was kind of weird. <laughs> I wasn't sure how to react to it this time around. The training montage really threw me off. It gave me another reason to not want to join G-Force. was all that. I have to admit, when I was watching it, I was I was thinking ahead a little bit to, uh, to Megagirus. When there's that line, we'll talk about it more then, but there's that line about how, why do we have to be in such good shape when we're fighting a giant monster? <laughs> I really like the Azusa character. And that's the girl that gets imprinted on by baby Godzilla. And then she kind of becomes his surrogate mother. Yes. And she's, she's good. I think she's good looking. I think she, she does get a chance to act quite a bit. She has quite a few lines. Yeah. She's a pretty prominent female character. And uh, do you think she becomes the one who upstages Mickey in this one? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you can tell. I do. Would you disagree? No. <laughs> yes. It's pretty obvious. Well, sometimes, now that I think about it, I wonder, would this movie have worked if it was Miki that Baby Godzilla bonded with? she's a telepathic person, you would think. (laughs) She talks to kaiju. Can't talk, can't can't be telepathic with people, but she could talk to plants and animals. I guess maybe she signed some contract or something that said (laughs) that she was always going to be a second, secondary character or a fifth wheel. Until the next movie. She does some stuff in the next movie. She does a lot in the next one. But this one, no. It's always the Azusa character who 
ends up getting a lot of the focus. She's she's really close to the center of the story. Probably my favorite scene with her is at the end when, and we all knew this this moment was going to have to happen. But when she's telling Baby Godzilla, "You have to go now," oh, and yeah. he and he won't he won't leave. I mean, she tries to get. I love the moment when she tries to get into the helicopter and he grabs the back of her coat with uh, yeah. with his teeth. It was it was endearing. I'm like, oh, it's a nice moment. <laughs> and she's like, no, you have to go. I'm sorry. <laughs> and and then he's he's too scared to go see Godzilla. He has to hide. So it, it's a wonderful moment. That's probably my favorite part with her. That's one of my favorite parts in the movie. I think. I also like Kenji Sahara as the uh, government official. Yeah, who makes little appearances in several of the Heisei movies, and also Koichi Ueda. There's this movie from 1996, and it's called Shall We Dance? And Koichi Ueda is in that. And so I, I always think of that when I see him. But I, he's he has some funnier lines maybe in later movies. But he's he's just good. He's A lot of times he's the general, I think, in, the, in these movies. Yeah, and he's the, probably the most gung-ho general in all of Godzilla <laughs> in this one. <laughs> I think I like his Final Wars role the best. <laughs> yeah. And also GMK. But he, he's really, he's just, uh, he's cool. I really like the, I really like him as an actor and just the sort of personality he has. Knowing this as a G fan and a ballroom dancer, I need to find this movie and watch it now. You you really, I think, would like it. I don't. It's a very easy film to like. It's, it's got a 7.8. Our actor discussion wouldn't be complete without the mandatory talk about Miki Sagusa in this movie segment of Kaiju Vision Radio. <laughs> I don't mind her in this. I like her. I have to admit I was a little bit confused at first about what her job was. I thought she was actually a school teacher at the psychic school and no, she's actually part of G-Force. <laughs> so I got thrown off a bit by that. <laughs> Yeah, there wasn't a scene that actually inaugurated her into G-Force, was there? Nope, she's just They just there. showed us the Jedi Institute for the little kids. <laughs> the Jedi School. <laughs> <laughs> fun fact. Fun fact, Brian. I was going to save this for later, but since you mentioned it, I'll, mention, uh, I'll bring it up here. The two teachers that meet Mickey and the other characters when they walk in to talk with the, with the psychic school children. Right. Those are the actresses who played the Cosmos oh, in yeah. the previous movie. And the director told them to talk in unison as a joke. I did detect that. <laughs> I remember now. But this movie, there's so much stuff that happens in it. And I just forget immediately after I see it. But I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. But this was, I think, the first time, other than maybe Biolante, where I felt like they were trying to do something with mickey in this because she because in this one she has a moral conflict baby godzilla is is an innocent creature and he's being put into a dangerous situation and she doesn't really want to go along with it and right, she's reluctant she's yeah she had thank goodness she didn't say the line but she didn't sign up for this <laughs> yeah and then that's furthered because then she becomes a focal point in the plan because for whatever reason she can help them locate the secondary brain much more easily. And she hesitates. That's probably, probably uh Megumi Odaka's best bit of acting in this whole thing is when she's 
the camera is close up on her and she's trying to figure out if she should do this. And even though she does it, you can tell that she's distraught over what she had to do. Yes, you can see the conflict taking place. Yeah. And I also have to admit, this is probably the, for what I can remember, I may change my mind later, but I think this is the prettiest Megumi Odaka has looked in any of these movies. Especially at the end when she's got the helmet off and her hair is just all over the place. Oh, yeah. She does look slightly different in each one. Yeah, her hair is always different. Yeah. So Mickey Sagusa, she did say uh, the, the, the line again, right, for this. Godzilla. Godzilla. Yeah, that, that was, she had to do that. It was at least once. But that's, it's like, <laughs> maybe that was written to her contract, too. I wrote, you, you must at least once <laughs> be the one who exclaims, Godzilla. I wrote in my notes, can we start a drinking game for this now? Take a shot every time Mickey whispers, Godzilla. <laughs> one, one thing that, when there's all this realism that tries to be brought into this whole thing, even though a lot of it's fantasy, <laughs> someone actually had to tell Mickey to use her psychic powers to tell Godzilla something. <laughs> oh, gee, that's brilliant. I'll use my psychic powers to influence Godzilla's actions. You'd think she'd be the main character. <laughs> yeah, at this point. Because she can't she's useless reading humans. And she'd only read plants and kaiju. So what worth what was she worth anyway? If she somehow but she somebody could... had to tell her if I was a psychic, I would be feeling Godzilla's psychic power and attuning myself to him constantly. Nobody's going to need to tell me, oh yeah, maybe I should try to tell Godzilla, please don't <laughs> do do this or that. But I was like, it's just, she just suggests to Mickey, oh, you should do that. <laughs> She's you, like, oh yeah. Do you think she got her job with, uh, <laughs> with the military because of when she managed to deter Godzilla briefly and Bialante, and then they're just like, oh, we're going to hire you because she's worked for the military or the government at the very least since Ghidorah 91. <laughs> right. So it's, like, so it's like that one thing and you get a job because you go from just being one of the kids at this institute to government job. As Godzilla is on his way to Kyoto, they have all of the JSDF, like they pretty much blow their wad entirely right there. Don't they <laughs> pretty and, much everything just gets nuked by Godzilla and, and there's nothing left. And then, and then he goes to Kyoto anyway, but the battle that takes place, all of, all of that, all of those effects, it looks really good. It does. And it actually looks better than what we're going to see later in the Heisei series. I think these <laughs> effects look better. It's it's just interesting how some things in some of these Heisei movies works better than others depend, with effects. And sometimes yeah, even within a movie, it, the, the effects can be can range from, oh, that looks really good, or that really just doesn't work. I feel like... It seems like there's a range going on. Yeah, I feel like especially once you hit the 90s, that becomes the case with with these movies i'm not sure exactly why they've just never seemed to be quite as consistent as they were say in the showa era along with the air battle the explosions at uh, one hour and 35 minutes in exactly the explosions when the newly revived godzilla is just 
unloading on Mechagodzilla, that that's impressive. Yeah, when all he, of the pyrotechnics, yeah, just when, incredibly good. When he goes full tilt, Super Saiyan there at the end, yeah, it's <laughs> awesome. I like it's it. it's nuts. <laughs> that's when you know you they have really reached fantasy territory here because it just just craziness there at the end. Since you're talking about some of the stuff there at the end, I'm going to say my one nice thing about Rodan in this movie. I actually thought that the sequence when he's trying to peck open the container that has Azusa and Baby Godzilla in it, I thought that was actually a very effective scene. The effects are nice. That looks okay. Yeah. Actually, yeah. The effects are nice. It really created a sense of tension and suspense and all of that. So there's my one nice thing about Rodan. What did you think of the fight between Godzilla and Mechagodzilla? I had read that they were trying to go for more grappling and physicality in this, but it still felt a bit beam heavy to me. I mean, there's some nice clawing around a bit there at points, but the Heisei Godzilla still seems to prefer fighting his opponents from a distance with beams. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a nice beam clash that they have there. Two. Looks very anime esque. Yeah. And then, you know, the beams clash there, and then they run into each other for a few seconds and explode. Yeah, and then we get our mega explosion. Yeah. yeah. But it's just, I don't know. I'm a little bit back and forth. I do. But it's kind of what happens. They made the monsters bigger, so it's harder to move. This is nowhere even close to the Showa series level 1970s oh, no. <laughs> sumo. <laughs> no, not at but all. I, I do find myself wanting some of that, though. Yeah, but, the, but the, all these Heisei movies, are, uh, lots of beams. And sometimes it makes sense. Bialante would be difficult to try to fight hand to hand. Although there's some very interesting hand to hand stuff going on in that movie, as we talked about. There's some interesting stuff in this one too. But I just like many things in this movie. I as soon as the scene's over, I forget what happened. I kind of like the design of Mechagodzilla in this. He doesn't have nearly the personality of. The Showa Mechagodzilla. The Showa Mechagodzilla is more interesting in that regard. But I like the design in this one. It's sleek and rounded and buff. The plate armor, it looks good. Yeah. It's not my favorite Mechagodzilla, but I see what they were going going with in this one. This Mechagodzilla doesn't really get a personality. He's just an extension of the human characters. Whereas It's an it. Yeah, whereas... Not a he. Yeah, whereas with the Showa Mechagodzilla, yes, he's being controlled by... Back then it was aliens, but I feel like what they do is they feed him commands and then he acts somewhat autonomously, which allows personality to come through. I would have to say, I am a huge fan of the opening credits in this movie in large part because of the music that is that is one of my favorite of fukube pieces in the the entire franchise absolutely love it and it harkens back as a lot of this movie does to the showa era because what do we what do we have in this it's this big shot of the mech where that it starts with the head and it pans down, kind of shows off how it looks, and you've got the big booming music in this, and it's showing all of the other machines that are in there while the credits are rolling. So it's kind of showing off the special effects and the models and all of that. And they did that in the Showa era, uh, first with Mechanicong and King Kong Escapes, 
uh, Honda would start at the bottom and move up, and they did that in the Mechagodzilla films from the 70s. 74, yeah, that's a pretty iconic shot of the going from the bottom and then going all the way up to the top. And this one, I think, specifically goes back to Terror of Mechagodzilla because there is a similar shot in there, again, with a great piece of Fukabe music. I will tell you, Brian, it was that shot specifically in these credits where I was thinking to myself, Guillermo del Toro obviously saw this movie because this is reminding me a lot of Pacific Rim. Actually, a lot of things in this movie are reminding me of Pacific Rim. It does, now that you mention it. <laughs> and considering I've seen Pacific Rim probably 15 times now. <laughs> this is the first Godzilla movie I've watched where I'm thinking, yeah, he saw this one. Well, I know a lot of people who are in the industry in Hollywood have seen these. Maybe not all of them, but quite a few of them. They always want to know what other countries are up to and was popular. There were some nice little aesthetic things that I saw throughout the movie that I really enjoyed. One of my favorite shots in the film is there's a scene. It's when Godzilla is fighting Rodan on the island. And there's this wonderful bit of suit acting from Satsuma. Is It's one of those times where I always appreciate watching these suit actors pay attention to little details. Early on in the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a scene when Godzilla rears back and then unleashes his atomic ray. And it's a nice little bit of character. So it's almost as if Godzilla is angry and he's trying to add a little bit more force to his ray, even though it's probably not really going to do anything. But it's a nice visual cue for us as the audience. It does look good. I like it. I really appreciate the use of the of the stomping sound effects for both Godzilla and Mechagodzilla. They're very distinctive, and it adds some nice audio qualities to it. And along the same lines, I'm sure they've done this before, but I was really noticing it in this movie, having the camera shake a little bit as Godzilla is taking his steps, particularly since we have some ground-level shots, like at the end when he meets baby Godzilla. It's almost like they have the camera set on the ground. Yeah, so and, it's and it helps with the immersion. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it does. And uh, Or the scene when he comes up to the building because he can't hear baby Godzilla anymore and they shake it a little bit then to kind of to create more tension because that's the characters are scared that he's going to do something. A nice little touches like uh, like that. And actually speaking of that that final scene, this has been one of the most aggressive and destructive versions of Godzilla we've seen so far. And then you get to the end of this and he actually displays a little bit of tenderness toward baby Godzilla. That's our theme, isn't it? Yep. You have to protect your offspring. Because we get the, <laughs> the, the... The script pretty much delivers the theme and in the sentence at the end, nice and encapsulated for us, right on a silver platter. And I think it's meant to be a bit ironic in a way, too, because Godzilla is such a destructive force, and yet he will still be kind to this little, the, to this little child kaiju. Well, we're doing Mothra, the original Mothra. The, yeah. The story of, of not, instead of the offspring, it was the Shobajin. Yeah. Also, the, the uh, Gorgo. <laughs> from, yeah, the British film. Yeah, which I've seen the Mystery Science Theater for, which is hilarious. <laughs> it is. <laughs> but it's, I've, I've seen that numerous times. But that, that's the same plot, too. That's the same story as this. 
because it's the parent who rampages through the city in order to get its offspring, because that's exactly what this is. What else do we... What else is all thrown in here? 1974. Obviously, yeah. Which is a maybe to some extent. Maybe to some extent, Terror of Mechagodzilla. But I feel like there's more. And then we got uh, Son of Godzilla. Godzilla. Because Godzilla offspring. Yep. And then Rodan. To some extent, Mothra. And then Rodan. Yeah. This is so many movies. So instead of having Omori's aping of American films. Not present in this. Yeah. yeah they're just copying themselves. <laughs> Extensively. <laughs> Extensively. I'm starting to get tired of everybody being surprised when a new kaiju shows up. <laughs> yeah, you think if they'd be used have, to it now. If you're going to have continuity, you really should carry it all the way through and just muscle through it and actually think, okay, what, and put themselves in the world that they're creating. Every, anytime a new kaiju shows up, it's just, oh, that's another another day, another kaiju attack. Everybody's dying and whole cities have been destroyed. But we just muscle through with our lives <laughs> and continue to live with time. But they, they could have done so much more with that, though. Yeah. It, it could have been like an episodic continuity and they could have gotten all heavy with the continuity and just made it even worse and, and just gotten all tedious with it and been like, <laughs> oh, what are they? And they start creating these long character arcs. and. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's really no reason. And so when they say, oh, it's, it's Radon, and, the, and they're like, Radon? Yes. Yes, Radon. Okay, we've established that. This is, this is the, the hellacious world that you live in, because unlike in the Showa series, it seems, you, you don't get to press the reset button with the Tokyo existing or not existing. Yeah, see, that's it's the, the thing. Refre- it's like the refresh button. We, what we what we needed in the Heisei series here is a refresh button. I know I love Mickey Sagusta and stuff, but maybe we can still even have her. Maybe. I don't know. How would that work? See, Recurring character with a reset button every time. And they're just, <laughs> they're, they're like li- reliving their life every, every no, movie. No, what's happening is Mickey is using her powers to wipe everyone's memory every movie. And that's why nobody thinks that she uses her powers on humans. Or they could have just done the Rick and Morty thing and then just been like, oh, this is another parallel universe. And so it's a new earth every single time a kaiju appears. That's called the Millennium Series. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's, it's, the, it's an ironic thing when I stopped and thought about it. The Showa series had a loose continuity, but eventually people were just like, oh, another monster? Ah, okay. <laughs> right, and and that was when they were, re- were hitting the reset button. And now that's not taking place where they're not surprised. I'd rather have them not be surprised. But th- this got us off into a continuity discussion, but it, I think we haven't really discussed that in this Heisei series yet all that much anyway. But no. Usually I think it's extremely boring to be talking about continuity, but they we're just saying they could have done... S- so much more. Well, let's let's uh, transition into our don't likes, and I'll do by doing my last like. I like how in the English version they say Radon. Yeah, now, that's interesting. Now let's start our don't likes. <laughs> so I don't Radon, like, I don't like Radon. <laughs> how, it, how it looks. I like that they brought Radon back. Yeah, Radon. I mean, it's nice. Yeah. It's 
still kind of playing it safe. But oh, absolutely! This this whole movie is playing safe. Well, the last one was mostly yeah, but at least we got a safe. new monster in that one. That, true. But this one, we have a redesigned Rodan. I don't like him. Well, there's no suit. It's, it's all puppets and marionettes, which in theory isn't a bad idea. But I mean, that was the nice thing about the you show. You should have made Rodin. it look exactly like the show of Rodan if you're going to do just a marionette, though. And that's I, I, it's it's just it doesn't look horrible, but it just is kind of weak. Yeah, it's just it was nice that the show of Rodan was a combination of all three. Because I think it helped, it helped make Rodan more dynamic. All, all three. Yeah, suitmation, puppet, and marionette. Because there are similar techniques used in this. The, the close-ups are obviously a puppet. And they did the same thing in the Showa era. But all the distant shots are, it's a marionette. And I give them credit for trying, but it just, it just wasn't as convincing to me as a suit was it's not quite as bad as hobgoblins but <laughs> almost nothing is as bad as that <laughs> but it, it, it does lack in some in some key places yeah no suit it was different but you would have had to hire a separate person to do rodan probably yeah. I, so i i'm not sh- i don't think it had anything to do with getting an actor along with a new suit yeah i think the it had i something. think it was just a creative decision they decided we're going to concentrate use, on something else. Yeah, we're going to use a puppet and a marionette to do this creature. The, inter, the introduction of of uh, Rodan to the film, he's like on the, uh, on the left side of the screen, and then he just starts flying slowly across the screen. <laughs> what a way to in, introduce the kaiju, the the great and powerful Rodan is like. <laughs> it's it is kind of underwhelming. You would think they would have made a big deal about it. It's not like it's just any monster. It's Rodan. Dang they, it! They do the whole <laughs> them being blown over by the wind stuff later on, like right after that. I think. But oh, then, but it's still is so underwhelming though because it's all it just looks like there's some guy up there with, with strings just pulling the thing along and it's like oh man yeah uh, it's it's a it's a huge heisei problem they can't do wings right they never could <laughs> well if also if somebody really wanted to kill rodan wouldn't we just do it the same way that we did with king gator i just blow holes through the middle of the wings and <laughs> yeah <laughs> it just falls into the ocean <laughs> rodan is harder to beat than Ghidorah. that's the sad thing that's that's the problem with Gator ninety one was he got killed in a New York minute twice. Yes, but anyway, incongruence. This Rodan, I call him Glitter Rodan instead of Fire Rodan. Yeah, Glitter Rodan. He did so many weird things with him in this too, because well, and Rodan being magic. Yeah, too. the magic because the 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 magic psychic music thing that can make baby Godzilla a little bit angrier that he could almost knock over a metal fence, but it makes Rodan come back from near death, grow 20 meters and suddenly be able to breathe fire. <laughs> Whatever. That's the thing. If you, when you have all this realistic stuff, they're trying to introduce in, in these Heisei movies more and the technology and the robots and the computers. But then they, when you mess around with magic, you get to just make stuff up however you want it. And so the, the monsters can 
be killed off and then a couple seconds later rebirthed with new powers because magic. And you don't have to explain anything. It's just it's just like radiation. Radiation's magic, essentially, too. And they make some weird decisions with Rodan. I, I wrote down in my notes, like, Rodan, why are you flying toward Godzilla's flopping tail? You're kind of a moron. <laughs> There's some of the fight sequence that I'm not really just, sold on. Yeah, it's just so odd. You know, you know another weirdo power not just the heat beam you know another weirdo power that rodan seemed to develop thanks to our magic psychic song all he has to do is fly over stuff and they blow up (laughs) that was one thing i had too i was like really i thought that's it he flies over stuff and it explodes i have the power of spontaneous combustion with with fire fireworks too it's just fireworks yeah and, and they just blow up and it's like what the so the water's exploding? How's the water <laughs> exploding? This is really amazing. Yes. Like, wouldn't, wouldn't that be funny if that's what happened when the Concorde flew over your house? <laughs> it's just... <laughs> your, your house explodes. Flies over a field, a cornfield, just all that explodes and turns into popcorn. <laughs> that's another thing with Rodan that's weak. We could spend another 20 minutes talking yeah. about well, Rodan and how weak it is. Well, <laughs> and the other thing that really gets to me is even that strange ability is inconsistent because he flies at the helicopter, Lizard One. I snickered when I heard that. And the helicopter explodes, but the container doesn't. <laughs> because totally magic. Selective. And he knows that that's where baby Godzilla is. So he, and he grabs it with his talons and flies away. It's like, I'm so glad you're able to control your spontaneous combustion power so well. I'm glad both of them in in this container had the capacity to not vomit (laughs) 15 minutes that they were carried around in this container. The other pteranodon that we have is this mechanical pteranodon. That counts as a character? Does it count as a character? It's featured too much to not be considered a character. (laughs) This this scene is is a rather long scene. Yes, it feels long. The one that's indoors with the two of them at the beginning of what you what I wrote down as Jurassic Park Kaiju Edition. Uh-huh. <laughs> but oh my gosh, Kazuma! He makes a big deal out of it. He's very proud of it. Yes, and I, I gotta admire his uh, pioneering efforts in the creation of. AI or robotics, whatever you want to say, because there's a whole robotic theme throughout this. But then yes. we get this thing. One, I don't like that scene very much. It doesn't do anything for me at all. It just seems awkward. It's too many lines of dialogue that That's... don't really work. The dialogue in the, a lot of these 90s movies doesn't particularly gel, but the, this is particularly, I think it's awkward. But then later in the movie, he shows up and he flies in with this pteranodon. Because he, he, he packed it into he, Garuda. He, yeah, he may as well have just gotten out of it and, and been like, look at me. I drove my pteranodon to work. This, this whole character. This character is rather. I, I just, I didn't get it. I thought what they, I, I think what in their heads, what they were going for was they wanted to have this quirky, idiosyncratic military type character maybe they were going for rick moranis because <laughs> this would be the year that this, they would do that this was actually 
I think Rick Moranis could have pulled this character off and made it work. This guy can't. No, but but, <laughs> but the whole character, the whole character, I think he was meant to be charming and kind of weird, but he just came across like you're calling that scene awkward. I felt like the whole th- his whole character is just is awkward, awkward in general. because well, look at me, I'm a Pteranodon fan. I'm like. Why do From I the care? Very beginning. He's like, I'm a Pteranodon fan. Oh, you have a Pteranodon egg. Oh, I built a robot Pteranodon. Oh, Rodan is a Pteranodon. It's just, what is your thing, dude? What is your, just, oh my gosh. And when, when you're talking about that, ter- the robot Pteranodon scene, I wrote in my notes, like, dude, you better be, this, what you're doing is only going to charm the geekiest of women. Oh, wait. You're going after a biology researcher. She qualifies. <laughs> but still, I would, um, if he kept on me, I'd consider using Mace. Well, and she threatened him, remember? Because he, he, he tries to pull the whole, oh, it was meant to be you and me routine. Like, oh, dude, come on. Yeah, yeah that's like instantaneous sirens going off in your head. Yeah. And she, she threatened to slap him. He's like, if you don't go away, you're going to get a slap in the face. I was like, why don't you do it? Oh, wait, the egg exploded. So we kind of forgot all about that. But <laughs> They were rescued by the by the plot. <laughs> the very well, thin plot that we have in this. Well, movie. but the, 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 the ironic thing is that Pteranodon scene is the only scene I can think of, at least any major scene in the movie that's not about the monsters so it's like the two minutes when they pretend that they have lives outside of the monsters that is true because there is a scene <laughs> at 102:35. we get a talky scene between the three characters and all they talk about is godzilla you know what i'm talking about yes from the get-go that's all they're talking about and it's one of those scenes and i thought oh no not one of these again that makes me actually want the Tron, the mechanical Tron seat back. I'd rather have, I'd rather see that again than have more of the. Well, let's talk about Godzilla for five more minutes. Yeah, we know. And then they, I think that's the problem when they, when we have these talky scenes, they talk about stuff that we already know. I think that's the problem. We, they don't find anything else out, so it's almost like they're, we're in an elevator. <laughs> we have to put up with the time of going in it and going up and somebody talks to you on the elevator you're like, Oh yeah. Yeah, But really you're just waiting on something else to happen. That's the point. So would you say that's where the extra 15 minutes came from for this movie? Part of it. Where did the, the other parts of the 15 minutes? I would probably the the Tronodon, (laughs) probably the action sequences because there's a lot of action sequences in this one. Yes, and I don't want to fault the movie for that. No, but I think that's but where I the extra, that's mean. part of where the extra right. fifteen minutes comes from. Uh-huh. And this holds the record for the most Godzilla screen time in the entire franchise. Twenty seven minutes. It's a lot. It's a lot. And I can't complain about that. And the suit looks great, so go ahead. This is a nitpick, but there's a point where Rodan is referred to as a giant bird. Like, he's not a giant bird. He's a pteranodon. They're like, oh, wait a minute. Parasite egg, like a European cuckoo. It also made me think of Spectre from 2015, the James Bond film, because there's there's that point where Christoph Waltz, he turns to Bond when they're at that huge, huge table at the meeting towards the beginning of the movie. And he turns and, and he's like... Hello, James. And then he's 
he's like cuckoo. <laughs> it goes back to the whole story of Bond's childhood and early life, but it's the same principle. Did you keep track of how many Godzillers we have in this movie? Mm, I only caught one. <laughs> Did you watch the English version? I watched the dub version. That's why I can't believe this came through. I expect to hear Godzilla in the dubs, especially the dubs that are made in Hong Kong. This is the original Japanese, and the guy who plays Kazuma says Godzilla. Yes, it's on the Japanese track that they say Godzilla even. Yeah. yeah, because it's one of those times when the Japanese actors are trying to speak in English. Gosh. And I couldn't believe it. I was just like, are you kidding me? And then what's really funny is in the next scene, the American actor, because he was talking to the American scientist, that American actor in the next scene says Godzilla. Says it perfectly fine. right back. Just like, yeah. Why? How? Even they're confused. I just, I don't understand. Why? I thought by watching it in Japanese, I wouldn't have to hear Godzilla, but. Yeah, it came in again. I was I was kind of shocked because I watched the Japanese version. I know it's I know it's it's like our favorite nitpick in this is Godzilla. But oh, after watching this, do you want the aliens back? Because it's a Mecha Godzilla film, and this is the third one, but it's the first one of the new series. What do you think? Might make it a little bit more interesting. I think I would be okay with it if just the human characters were more interesting. I think it's what it boils down to. The That's alien, not help you. No. <laughs> this the, time around. The the aliens were just more interesting characters, even, even though they were they ridiculous. Were, even when the one was whipping the others, yes. it was still more desirable. But I did want the aliens back. Yeah. Really, the short answer for it is, yeah, I wanted the aliens back. Even if they were monkeys, I think I would take that. I, when I when I see this Mechagodzilla, I, I joked in the last one, uh, the show of Mechagodzilla, I, I kind of picture talking like Schwarzenegger because he's like the Terminator. This one, I think, would just be a flat computer voice. It's a robot. It's like a really large tank. Yeah. Is really all he is. <laughs> it's it with a distinctive shape. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when you have diamond coating, you could really make anything. Make it any size you want. Preferably, I want it to be something that flies, which this this does, right? Well, when it has the special attachment. No, it can fly on its own, too. I don't remember. Well, you can say it. I don't remember anything about this movie. You can say it hovers with the special attachment. (laughs) When we're talking about vacuums? (laughs) (laughs) When you got to right before... Mickey sends the telepathic reassurance to baby Godzilla and Azusa calls her, uh, calls her up on the radio. Did you think for a second that she might've been telepathically communicating with her? Cause I did. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the first time I saw it, did you read about the deleted subplot? About this American-sounding woman who ends up being an android. The blonde? Yeah, I, uh, you told me about it. That would have been good. They should have kept that and perhaps deleted the stupid mechanical pterodactyl. <laughs> With the nice little plot twist. Oh, look, I'm an android! Yeah, they could have had that. Thematically, it would have actually been 
it would have made more things going on. Since we're talking about ideas that they didn't use, the genesis of this movie, they went through several different ideas before they settled on this. At one point, they were going to do a remake of King Kong versus Godzilla, but Universal said no. That would have been interesting. A Heisei version of that movie. And then they thought, okay, we can't use King Kong. How about we use Mechanicong from King Kong Lives? And they had come up with this, what I thought was a really ambitious story, although I think they would have needed more time and money to realize it, which was that Mechanicong would have had syringes on one of his hands, and then he would act, inject uh, the human characters into Godzilla's bloodstream, and they would have done an internal attack upon him. It would have been like Fantastic Voyage. And there was also a point in the script where they planned on having... Godzilla die at the end, and then there would have been this huge burst of radiation, and baby Godzilla would have become a new full-grown Godzilla. They didn't go with that. They changed the ending, although they ended up using that again later in a couple of movies. Like you were saying, there were some interesting ideas that they were playing with, but they ended up just deciding to do the safe route. Well, maybe maybe since we had issues with the complexity of the first, or of the uh, 91 and 92, then... We shouldn't complain about things being simpler. <laughs> you have a point there. Did you notice that Rodan flies over Tokyo Disneyland? He does? Yeah. It's when they do the, what was probably helicopter footage or something like that. <laughs> oh, the theme park. Yeah. I didn't realize that, that was, was... That was Tokyo Disneyland. That was actual see. Tokyo Disneyland? Yeah. I didn't realize that. Oh my gosh. And that makes me think of Godzilla versus Gigan because of all the connections that we were able to draw to uh, Disney, Disneyland. Yeah. All they were missing was the Godzilla Tower. And the monorail. <laughs> Along those same lines, did you see comic book guy from The Simpsons? Who hasn't? In this movie. Oh, in this movie? <laughs> in this movie. Oh, really? Yes, our, our little friend... Leo Asimov cringe. Oh, Dr. Leo Asimov. With the hair. It yes. looks like they got comic book guy from The Simpsons and then put him in an aging machine and aged him 20 years. And then he shows up in Godzilla and he's like, worst episode ever. <laughs> the Garuda sucks. We prefer the giant robot lizard. <laughs> His English is okay. He, he he sounds like an Italian name. Yeah, the actor's name, Mena Gennetti. Yeah. <laughs> his his English isn't bad though. It, it adds it adds yet another layer to this international flavor. Besides every, everybody speaking a lot of English terms on the bridge <laughs> yes. and all that, but yeah, this is a very important thing that I've been thinking about. Is and that is, these movies act very serious. The Heisei movies do. They are they they treat actions very seriously, and their the atmosphere is serious. And then in in the Showa series, we had movies that were entertaining and light, and had borderline silly things sometimes, but just more humorous, lighthearted. I would say more than yes. So before in the Showa series, we were laughing at. The, in, the things that were funny on purpose. And, and now people are laughing at the Heisei series about stuff that they take seriously. I see what you mean. 
I don't think anybody's ever said this before, but it's just something I'm noticing, especially chronologically. We all, it's like, shut up. Don't, don't laugh. (laughs) Don't let, what? I'm going to laugh. This some of this is a little bit funny and you're not trying to, sometimes they're trying to. And, and, and that comes off more as cheesy. I think Maybe. what it, and and then and then the, the 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 serious stuff we laugh at sometimes. I think what it is, particularly once you hit the '90s, is these movies take themselves so seriously, it's funny. I, I think that's what it is. Is it? But it's not intentional, is it? No, <laughs> they're not. They're not like hamming it up or. Making a parody of themselves. No, they're not. But no, they're not trying to be funny. No, and, but <laughs> that's by, the problem. Yeah, they're, they're taking themselves too seriously. Yeah, and and you're you're a huge franchise. You have you have so much going for you. You can be confident and you, and you can joke around like you did in the seventies without. We're and we were laughing with it. We're then laughing at it. Yeah, in order to do something serious with this particular genre and subject matter, it has to be done a particular way. And we've seen you that have work. have to have the atmosphere. Yeah, and we've, had, we've seen that work. Return of Godzilla would be my go-to example, how yeah, you can do this worked. seriously and it can work. That worked, yeah. Uh, the original film would qualify as that as well, but, but these, they're missing something. Do you think this Mechagodzilla actually succeeds where all other kaiju up to this point have failed in actually killing Godzilla? It depends on if you think that Godzilla is actually killed or if he's paralyzed or if he's just brought to the brink of death, but not death. Do we really know? The reason I ask is because I read about this movie in the official Godzilla compendium by J.D. Lees a year before I ever saw it. And at several points in that book, it says Mechagodzilla kills Godzilla in this movie. But then when I watched it, it didn't seem quite that way to me. It seemed like he was completely paralyzed for sure. Or almost killed. Or yeah. one step away from dying. Yeah. Until Glitter Rodan arrives and saves the save Yeah. Day. So... I think I'm going to have to I'm going to have to do what my history professor did when I was in co- when I was in college. Your textbook is wrong. <laughs> As, so I don't think he was actually dead close, but not quite. This concludes part 2 of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part 3 of the podcast, we will be discussing Related topics are either brought up by the film or were going on at the time that the film was released. So this week, we will be discussing the relocation of Marine Corps Air Station Futenma. What we're going to be talking about in part three for this episode is something of a continuation from episode 19, which was Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 1974, which is very appropriate. In, in that one, we talked a lot about Okinawa and its history and culture. And in this one, we're going to be talking more specifically about the bases. And culturally, that's everything that's going on with Okinawa culturally is, is this. And yes, obviously, uh, that, that's just a no-brainer once you learn uh, all the facts. 
We thought this was so big and so important that it deserved to have its own episode. It was in the mid-90s that the Okinawa issue started becoming a really big one again. First, let's go through the compelling figures that are involved in this really quickly and then get on. U.S. bases make up 18% of the main island of Okinawa, and 70% of the U.S. bases in Japan are in Okinawa. So there, there is a big, what we would call, unbalanced burden, is a phrase that we run into a lot. And it's very accurate, because just looking at the numbers, it's really impossible to deny. And just to put this into perspective, this island only take, makes up 0.6% of all of the Japanese land. The north of the main island is not as populated. And it's it, what is really heavily populated is the south part of the island. And that's where a lot of the bases are. Even though they are numbers that are, uh, there are a couple of them that are spread out throughout the rest of it. Futenma is the flashpoint for everything that's going on with, with the current um, crisis impasse. I would say impasse. Another compelling figure, the 1995 rape case. 12-year-old girl by three soldiers. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Big deal. 1995, uh, there were 85,000 protesters as a result of that event. And I think that was the most since 1960. I read that someplace. And they surrounded Futenma yes, when they huge. did this which Futenma is surrounded by basically city on all sides of it. And it is a Marine Corps air base, specifically. So there's a lot of noise and a lot of other... Uh, and when you combine it with all the other bases, there are three things that, that keep coming up. One is crime by service members. And that's a big one. And that includes stuff like, what, burglary... Uh, rape, murders, assaults, assault, yeah, um, drunk driving. Mm -hmm. So then another one is stuff crashing into things, and yeah, and, and landing on things and uh, dropping things. In fact, most recently, there was a one meter square window from a helicopter that dropped into an elementary school playground. Yes, and there, there were kids out there, and thankfully no one was hurt. Uh, they were obviously really scared. Some of them ran in, but th this is, uh, gosh, but this this has happened before. There have been helicopters that have crashed near elementary schools, and just um, so that that's a whole category in and of itself. And it's because what there's so many bases, there's so many personnel, so many vehicles, there's tens of thousands of people, and so this is gigantic. It's really hard to. It's really hard to imagine. And then another third thing that really goes under a lot of, really sucks up a lot of categories is environmental damage. The more, the more you read about it, the, the nastier it gets. And it's because of the, what, the, the chemicals, and then at, at, at points it's weapons, chemical weapons sometimes. Agent Orange? Yes. Dioxin. And then there's also the fuel there because there's jet fuel all over the place and then you know they either accidentally bust a pipe or they somehow it, it happens i guess a lot 
the, the more you research all of the negative effects, it, it is really dead realistic. I think having that much military presence in such a small space is a, a large contributing factor to what we're dealing with here because <laughs> it's all so compact. It's, it's not like here in Fort Wayne where we're based out of. There's, there's an air base here, but it's just one. With Okinawa, you've got, what, seven of them? All concentrated in on one part of the island. Uh, six of them are in the, what I would say, the southern part of the island or the central part, at least. Uh, you have Futenma, which is the Marine Corps Air Camp Schwab, which is U.S. Marine Corps. Gadena Air Base, which is U.S. Air Force. Naha Military Port, which is U.S. Forces Japan. Camp Courtney, Camp Kinzer, and Camp Foster, which are all Marines. So there's a lot of activity, and the bases are large. They take up a large area. But Futenma, Futenma is the biggest. Futenma's too. footprint massive. is very large, and then it's also surrounded by city on all sides. So it's, yeah. it's just in the middle of everything. And so the, the main plan for this was what? It, it, the long-term plan, especially after this 1995 incident, it was to say, okay, let's move Futenma out and move it to the north part of the island, which uh, what is up there is Camp Schwab, which that's U.S. Marine Corps. And so the plan was to huh, either do a landfill or not do a landfill, depending on who said no. But the, the plan was to do a either landfill or not, then have a new, I believe, two runways, and then all of that from Futenma would be moved out. But that was 1995 that that was first talked about, and this still hasn't happened at all. And there are many, many reasons for why. And it all, and that actually makes perfect sense. The most common proposal is to move the base to an offshore facility, like you said, up to up at Camp Schwab, which is on Hinoko Bay. But those plans have been shut down for environmental reasons, most notably because they're concerned about the reefs up there, and there's an endangered species of dugong that are up there. It was so significant that even Greenpeace got involved with this and collected signatures from 164 countries to prevent this from happening. There were issues with the landfill, too, because the dirt wouldn't be coming from Okinawa. It would be coming from, I believe, Shikoku. And so there were concerns about the ants that were in the soil and that the, they would become the dominant ants or whatever. You know, it would be messing around with the biodiversity there's that angle, but then also the, the, yeah, the dugong, which I believe that they are classified as threatened, which is the, it's like the second notch up on the endangerment level. It's not highly endangered or anything. It's, it's more, it's not, it's more towards the lower part of the scale than the upper part of the scale. It's still enough of a concern. And then also the, the beaches and the bay and everything is so picturesque and beautiful when you start trying to quantify the dollars in damage done when you mess around with a coral reef and damage it, then the numbers get really frightening really fast. Another reason that things haven't gone very well is this is Okinawa we're talking about. Okinawa has been colonized by two, uh, shall we say, empires. There's that. And, of course, being marginalized... And being ignored when you're voicing your opinion is really frustrating. And colonialism is really frustrating. 
and Okinawa has been marginalized for centuries. And I and if I was there, I'd sort of wonder: is anything ever going to really change? I just want to be rid of it. That's what I would expect the chorus to be. We just want to be rid of it. We don't care how to just get rid of it. And then the mainland, but also I mean, just if you realize that if everything's gone, then where's the protection against anybody? And then their national defense is gone. And what do you do? So it's a, it can't go anywhere. It's a nasty catch 22. Yeah. Tens of thousands of military personnel. And you want to reduce the impact that you're making. And yet things are at a stalemate. Yeah. Because the, 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 Okinawa attitude has been just get them off the island. If anyone proposes a plan that isn't get Futenma off the island, then they overwhelmingly uh, disagree with it. Then the governor of Okinawa gets voted off the island. (laughs) That's what happens. The politicians in Okinawa who get elected and then they're like, Oh, let's do the base. And, and then, and then all of a sudden a little bit later, they're, they get their heads lopped off figuratively in the election that comes because they're trying to compromise minded. So th- so then it's off with your head because we want to voice our opinion and our real opinion is we don't want it at all. Yeah. We don't want it to be relocated. We don't want it at all. We want it moved to uh, Honshu, Kyushu, Hokkaido. Anywhere but here. Somewhere, yes. Yeah. Artificial islands somewhere. That'd be great. We know somebody else is making a lot of those right now. Uh huh. <laughs> but in 2016, there was a rape and murder of an Okinawa one Okinawan woman by a service member, and, and so this is just these kind of events are, are constant. And I would be so frustrated if I was them, and I'd be wanting the mainland to take more of the burden. And that's what the, the words that keep coming back is unbalanced burden, unbalanced burden. This long and, history of incidents, mm. it's just adding fuel to the fire. And part of it has been talked about. Part of it has been about moving more things from Okinawa to Guam as well to Anderson. To Anderson Air Force Base, yeah. Or to other locations in mm, the Pacific. The Pacific area, And yeah. they've succeeded in and, doing that. They have reduced numbers, but mm-hmm. that's about but as much success as they've achieved at this point. But it's unfortunate, though, because Okinawa appears to be one of the best places to have the bases. That's why they're there. Because strategically and distance-wise, Okinawa is a very strategic location. And whoever has Okinawa has a very big advantage. I mean one of the most savage battles of World War II and all of human history was there. And it was there for a reason. It was because it's, it was the lynch, linchpin of, of when things became too dire for the Empire of Japan. That, that was when, I'm sure some of them at least, realized that the, the, what the writing on the wall said. And that's why the bases were established there in the first place. Yeah, it was there are bases established there by the Empire of Japan um, in order to strategically fend off any attack. And so there's a base for them, and then it becomes us. Just like the garrison in Seoul, it was occupied by the Japanese and during the Empire, and then it became us. Now our soldiers are there. But on the other hand, I can understand where the Okinawans are coming from. As we 
talked about in episode 19, they have a long history of being conquered and ruled by an outside country. Mainly Japan. Mainly Japan. It was China and Japan fighting over them. Yeah. Yeah. And then since then, after the war, they were occupied by the United States until the the early 70s. And then they were given back to, to the Japanese, which I'm sure a lot of Okinawans didn't necessarily appreciate that. So they're looking at these, I think, as intrusions. And then, yeah, they're part of Japan, but then it seems like the mainland isn't paying attention to them and it isn't listening to them. And just it's just all of these things. It just continues to feed this, it continues this pattern that they just don't seem like they can get out of it. Because you have to understand, Okinawa used to be its own country. They were independent of Japan the Ryukyu for a Islands. long time. The yeah. Ryukyu Islands. Yeah. They were their own entity. Well, they're just tired of the same old thing over and over again. But then the solution that a lot of them find is the solution is just just say no. Yeah, that's pretty but, much but been what they've been doing. But that's where, why we're here now. It's just been just say no versus Japan and the United States compromising and saying this is what's going to happen. Which, as of right now, that is what's going to happen, the base relocation. Because it went all the way to the Supreme Court of Japan and they said that there's there's no reason for the that new governor of Japan to rescind the agreement that the previous governor of Japan had made allowing the base relocation and the landfill. That contest is over in the court system, and so the relocation of the base will move on. But that's what happened recently, was the governor, the one governor agreed to it, and then he got defeated in the election, and then the new governor, who was very against the base, he said, I'm rescinding the agreement for the relocation of the land, you know, through the landfill system. And so then everything came to a screeching halt and then it went to the courts. If you look on Google earth, for instance, look at Futenma base and it's uh, it's on Okinawa, but if you just look at it, the amount of urban city surrounding it is pretty staggering. And so looking at that image, you can tell why this is such a contentious issue. In 2009, uh, there was a change where even the government of Japan didn't agree with the base relocation plan. And that was in 2009 when uh, Prime Minister Hatoyama came to power and he was from the DPJ party. And so the Democratic Party of Japan. Yes, at the time. Uh, And that is now called the Democratic Party. He was against the base relocation. That was one of the issues that he actually campaigned on. And then he told the United States, no, I, I want to abandon this plan. And the United States said, well, we're going to continue as if you didn't say that. We're not going to, we're not going to acknowledge this because as far as we're concerned, we're still on with this. And they, they just, the United States was just like, yeah, we're not listening. The issue was so contentious that even though the DPJ and Hatoyama campaigned on moving the bases off of Okinawa, it ended up being, the failure to do so ended up being one of several reasons why Hatoyama resigned after only eight months in office. There were two more DPJ prime ministers after that, but it was a short-lived affair. In 2012, when the LDP came back to power for uh, Prime Minister Abe's second term. 
Another thing that was going on in 1993 was the LDP actually lost its majority in the lower house for the first time since 1955. And before we close out, we got to mention the economic figures. It's our trademark, Brian. The economic growth for 1993 for GDP was 0.17%. Ouch. At this point in time, this is the completion of, of the stock market crash, but also uh, the, the GDP starts uh, having a lot of problems, uh, just like a, well, in 1992, that was our first zero point something growth. And so th- this is when we, uh, when we enter the lost decade. Yeah, uh, which we talked about uh, last episode. Yeah, I was about to say at this point, Japan's firmly entrenched in the lost decade. All of this is pertinent, not because it was brought up by the movie, but because this was what everyone was talking about in Japan at the time that the movie was released. Well, I think that wraps things up for us. What are we talking about next week, Brian? Space Godzilla. Yep. 1994's Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla. Christmas Ornament Godzilla. Giant Crystal Godzilla. Yeah, Crystal Godzilla. WTF Godzilla. <laughs> yes, Godzilla gets to fight, well, a version of himself. Again. See you next time. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherchel, and I edited this podcast. And I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. Sayonara! Sayonara!